0: Hello, I'm Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton, and I lead the Justice, Equity, and Opportunity Initiative. Welcome to my podcast series, Walk, Listen, Learn, Our Journey to Justice. Why a podcast? Well, I wanted to combine three things I love, walking, listening, and learning, as the title suggests. I'm also passionate about people and finding engaging ways to discuss issues. So thanks for joining me. Today, we're talking about mental health and trauma and the impact of both on overall community well-being. We'll also explore some of the inequities related to access to mental health services and what we can do to really try to expand those services to the communities that need it the most. My guest today is Jennifer McGowan-Tomke. She is the Chief Operating Officer of NAMI Chicago. NAMI Chicago is a local affiliate to the National Alliance on Mental Illness and focuses on supporting individuals, families and professionals as they navigate the mental health system in the Chicagoland area. Jennifer also has experience in mental health policy advocacy for youth that have been justice involved. Jennifer, thank you so much for walking, listening and learning with us today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm excited about this conversation because out of all of the episodes that we have recorded of this podcast thus far, I would say that the topic of trauma has come up more than any other issue. It's I think it's been touched on in almost every single episode and that certainly makes sense since we're talking about the justice system because we know that these topics are very connected. Um, One of the things that comes up is this idea of trauma-informed. We hear this phrase, trauma-informed services, trauma-informed programming. That's something that has been a sort of a phrase that we hear a lot about these days. Um, But I think that there's also this sense that trauma specifically means that it's related to exposure to violence or that when you've experienced trauma, it means that violence has been involved in some way. Can you talk about that word trauma? What does it really mean? And how does it play out in everyday life? Like, is it just about violence or what does it mean?
1: I think that's a great question. So trauma is really an emotional experience or reaction Mm -hmm. to a uh, terrible event. And it's not just violence, but it can be things like Accidents, natural disasters, death. And when a child um, is, experiences something that's threatening to them, either experiences or witnesses something threatening to them, mm-hmm. we tend to call that trauma. And I think that it is bigger than the experience of violence. Because what it really says is, I have experienced something that has threatened my safety, And that can be a lot of things. It's a lot of different things that kids might experience or adults might experience. But I think that we have to remember that the emotional response of it is actually a pretty normal response, right? The traumatic event may be abnormal, but having an emotional response to something that's threatening to our safety is a really normal response in that scenario.
0: I I love the way that you're describing it because it seems to normalize it to some degree. That we all, it seems like just by living a life that has lots of experiences, Um, and lots of unexpected experiences and sometimes certainly we're living in a global pandemic right now for example there are things that happen in everyday life that can make us feel like we are being threatened in some way
1: right absolutely and then our
0: reaction to that is normal whatever emotions that we have connected to that feeling of being threatened is normal
1: Yeah, I I think that's true. And I think that, you know, where um, those feelings of being threatened or feeling unsafe um, disrupt our ability to kind of have that normalcy in life, Mm. that's when we're looking to support people. Well, we're always looking to support people, but we're looking for those moments where it overwhelms our ability to cope and our ability Mm -hmm. to manage. But the, you know, trauma can be experienced in so many different ways, and our, our emotional reactions are on a spectrum like our mental wellness is on a spectrum.
0: And so when you talk about sort of our reactions, there are some reactions that, okay, I'm having an emotional reaction to the fact that I felt threatened. There might've been a natural disaster, as you said. And of course it's, it, you, you know, you tense up and you're reacting to it and you might even be scared or afraid. Uh, and then after it's over, we are able to kind of regulate again some of our emotions. But when we talk about trauma, there might be an additional level where you're not able to kind of gather yourself or regulate your emotions. Is that what you mean when we have to start thinking about trauma-informed approaches?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that there are protective factors that Mm -hmm. we all have. Those are the really important things that we want to focus on, not just in community, but in policymaking too. And those are things like supportive relationships and physical and psychological safety and community. Um, But those things can be overwhelmed, right? Depending on the experience that we have. And when someone experiences trauma that overwhelms their ability to mitigate in Mm -hmm. some way, Mm -hmm. certainly it's not their fault. Mm -hmm. And, And the reaction to that needs to be in a way that acknowledges that safety is the core component of what's happened to them, right? And so when we say trauma-informed care, we're talking about doing things really deliberately. The practice of that is, you know, deliberate, intentional engagement with people that acknowledges that they might have felt unsafe in an environment just like a a, school or Mm -hmm. coming to a doctor's office. We have to imagine that that safety is always feeling threatened for that child. And our practices need to provide empathy and provide support and build trust in any of those settings.
0: So you specifically gave an example of how a child might feel. And I want to talk about childhood trauma. But trauma is something that Anyone can experience at any age. There's Absolutely. no no limitations on that. So let's jump to childhood trauma, um, because I can tell you, you know, when I think about young people in the justice system, for example, we know that 85 percent or more have experienced some form of trauma, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's interesting to talk about that. Uh, and we'll maybe we'll pick up on that a little bit later in the conversation, but I want to talk about just child development, mm-hmm. that trauma can actually have an impact on how a child develops and grows and the way that they have an their sort of outlook on life. What is the impact of childhood trauma?
1: There are, uh, it can be a variety of impacts. And it, it is really important, I think, to dive into that because the uh, impact on children, I mean, if we kind of talk about the science a little bit, mm-hmm. is that um, brain development is really impacted. Um, the research shows that uh, the actual size of a young person's brain can be impacted by the trauma that they experience, right? So it's not just, I think it's important to think about the actual physiological piece behind it. There is mm-hmm. a difference for this young person um, and there's a lot of ground to uh, ground to make up or, or things to address as a result of that. But there are short-term consequences mm-hmm. um, in the development for kids um, that include Uh, lacking trust, um, experiences of isolation, um, things like missing school, and uh, that impacting grades, um, and then there are long-term consequences like mental health and physical health um, challenges um, that we have seen related to young people who have experienced trauma.
0: You know, I've done some training around uh, trauma-informed responses, and I remember one of the instructors kind of talking about that we're almost at a place in society where we have to assume trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, that and I thought that was really um it was quite thought-provoking, but it was also a bit sad. Yeah. Like that that when we think about our schools and our young people, that you almost have to assume and kind of approach them from the standpoint that something that they have experienced has caused trauma in their life. Now, what I did appreciate about that conversation was that it can help us to better meet the needs of young people who, for a long time, without this sort of trauma lens or trauma-informed lens, you assume that you're not doing well in school because you're not trying or you're not focused in class because you're not, you know, you just just want to goof off and you're not paying attention. But a lot of times the reason why this trauma-informed lens can be helpful is because it may answer a question about what else is happening or going on in that child's life.
1: Right. Absolutely. I mean, those are the things that we really have to think about when we're talking about what's what does support mean for mm-hmm. young people? And I think that um, that's a, a really interesting lens to bring to this assuming trauma for for everybody. But the practice of what we're going to do, I think it, it's it's not as complicated, right? It's offering kindness, it's offering Mm. empathy, it's providing compassion. I I do think that it's important to use that lens because it makes us create policy different. But our human interactions with each other, they need to assume that everyone's going to have a bad day once in a while, or Mm. that someone has experienced something that we cannot fathom or that we don't understand.
0: And and I I love that because I'm often thinking about how, We take things personally because of someone's reaction, the way that someone engages with us. And to pause and just to recognize that you don't know what someone is going through. And certainly with our children, uh, you don't know what they're going through. And so you can either be in a position of judgment where you decide, well, they're this type of person or they're not respectful or they're Mm -hmm. whatever. Or you can say, you know what, I don't know. And the best I can do right now is to be compassionate, and kind. And I think especially through the pandemic, there's been a lot of need to really recognize that people are going through a lot, Mm -hmm. and a lot of it is traumatic, Mm -hmm. a lot of loss, a lot of grief, and being kind often can be one of the most powerful things we can do.
1: Absolutely. Well, and especially with the pandemic, right? If you think about safety being one of the the, the basic components of how trauma might um, evolve or mm-hmm. might the experience of trauma might happen for someone, everyone walking out of the house right now is feeling a little unsafe. A little
0: unsafe because you don't know. So what does that mean, though? I know you said from the beginning that this is not just about violence, but needless to say, a lot of people would think about children that live in communities with high rates of gun violence and other forms of violence and um, you know, and how these young people can just even just keep going day to day today. So what are some of the things, I know that there are protective factors, there's some level of resiliency, but what does happen to a young person when you're living in a community that has high rates of violence?
1: Yeah, I think what we understand about that situation is that it, there is fear. Mm-hmm. There is a sort of constant element of fear. And if you can imagine just kind of always waking up in that space and not feeling physically safe where you live, the the toll of that, the mm-hmm. weight of that is so significant. And, you know, there are young people all across the city that are going to school every day and having this experience in their community. And, and state. And state, right. Yeah. And 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 showing those resilient factors and those strengths, and those are the things that we really need to build on and to support in community. But the 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 truth is that it is very, it, We I think people can really resonate with the idea that living in constant fear is going to change how we react and how we live in the world.
0: Yeah, kind of looking over your shoulder, wondering what's next, when is the next thing gonna happen? That is not the kind of state that people wanna live in, And when we think about our children, uh, the impact of that is why we have to constantly think about how to strengthen our communities and make sure our communities are healthy for our children, because they shouldn't have to live in a constant state of fear.
1: That's absolutely right. and. I um, I think Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who's the uh, S- Surgeon General in California right now, um, really said this best when she talked about hypervigilance, right? Mm. This feeling of, of being always on edge. She um, talked, talked in one of her TED Talks about, you know, if you're approaching a bear, if you're in the forest and there's a bear and your fight or flight mode starts, right? You are, you're in survival mode, but what happens if that bear comes home every night, right? Or Mm. what happens if that bear is in your community every day, then you are in a constant state of survival and you, and we, we can sort of anticipate what's going to happen as a result of that, right? Either we're going to, um, be so hypervigilant that maybe we're reactive or explosive or, um, impulsive, mm-hmm. or you know, we're gonna hide from the bear, right? And we're gonna isolate, and that withdrawal from community or withdrawal from our self and our friends and our family can be just as detrimental.
0: So I, you know, you used some words right there. You said reactive, impulsive, explosive. And when we're talking about young people, we then add on top of that, this sort of adolescent brain development mm-hmm. that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about the justice system because I mentioned before how many young people in the justice system have experienced trauma, whose brains are still developing, who are still impulsive, and then you add the trauma to that that might put them, if they're not on the more isolated side, more on the reactionary, explosive, um, impulsive side. Mm-hmm. So, what does you know? What have you? What do you know? What do we need to know? about young people in our justice system as it relates to experiencing trauma? What's important for us to consider as we think about policy changes?
1: I think that, um, you know, what you just said is really the crux of this, right? That 85% of youth who are um, within the justice system experience trauma. We know that that aligns with the 70% of youth who live with a mental health condition that are arrested or the 95% of youth who um, are coming out of the Illinois Prison system live with one or more mental health condition. Right? We what we know is that this experience is very common in the justice system,
0: and now, I can I, I have sure. to interrupt you because Please. we've been talking about trauma, but you just put out some facts about just mental health conditions more broadly Absolutely. and how it intersects with the justice system. Can mm-hmm. you say that again?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, research shows that seventy percent of youth who are arrested. Uh, live with a mental health condition. Hmm. So there's a um, real intrinsic link, right, between the youth who are then, it, it begin this pipeline yes. to the justice system um, and the you know diagnosable health conditions that they have. Um, and I think the, the other statistic that I mentioned that 95% of youth who are in the Illinois youth prisons mm-hmm. live with one or more mental health condition wow. really tells us that, the vast majority of the people that are deep within this system experience some health issue that needs to be treated and needs to be and, addressed. And could
0: be part of the reason why they actually ended up in the system. Is that fair to say? I or? think
1: it's fair to say. I think it's fair to say that- um, Contributed at least. Well, that we um, we can look at behavior mm-hmm. that um, may be related to a mental health condition or to the experience of trauma as looking very similar to criminal behavior, Mm. right? It's the reaction, um, being impulsive or um, feeling hypervigilant or um, uh, reactions with family, how we mitigate stress or just in our daily lives and and not being um, really well equipped to do that. Those are things that sort of allow the justice system to kind of creep into the picture, right? Mm. And you, one of the challenges there is that we need to have services and resources and programs that catch people before that point. But the reality is that we know that those people are coming into the justice system because our numbers tell us that, right? Right. So we there is a real connection between that behavior that um, can – look criminal, but that may be a result of something that that young person is experiencing.
0: So how do we, you know, we've had one of our episodes talking about the school to prison pipeline, Mm -hmm. and it sounds very familiar, thinking about young people who may need something else, some other form of intervention, but instead end up being criminalized. And this sounds very similar to that to me. Mm -hmm. So if you have a young person with a mental health condition or a young person who has experienced deep levels of trauma um, and is exhibiting some of this reactionary, explosive, impulsive behavior, what else could be done to say, instead of going to the justice system, there's something else for you? Are there other diversions or other ways to address those issues?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you know there are other ways, and we know what some of those services are, and I think that around the state, some of these are building, too. We're talking mm-hmm. more and more about diversion, mm-hmm. meaning instead of going further down that line with the justice system, we are taking a total step and we are making a referral or a warm handoff to a social service provider who's gonna meet those mental health needs or those needs related to trauma. That's what we need to continue doing, right? We need to acknowledge when um, in order for a young person to succeed, to um, find health in their life and wellness in their life, they need an intervention that really speaks to the health experience that they're having.
0: Yeah, and I really like this idea of thinking about, because it can happen earlier rather than later. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I like the idea of thinking about how to keep young people out of the system in the first place. A lot of times we hear these conversations about services that are provided while a young person is incarcerated. Right. But it doesn't, when you talk about diversion, what you're saying is, before we get there, what can we do while the young person is still in their community, still right. connected with their family, still going to their school to make sure that they have some of those services and resources so that they don't end up in the system?
1: Absolutely, and I think that we need to remember that it's bigger than just medical services, right? An important component of this may be therapy. It might be therapy with families. Um, it it, um, it may be medication. You know, it, it this these are health conditions, right? Mm-hmm. But those aren't the only pieces of of what recovery looks like and what we need to do to support communities. We have to be thinking about purpose, right? We have to be thinking about what does that youth want to do? What motivates them in school or related to work? Mm-hmm. How are they finding that sense of purpose in themselves to keep them m- motivated in their health and in their recovery? Another piece is, is home, right? Having mm-hmm. a, a safe and stable place, not just to live, but our, an environment, a community that feels safe. Um, and then the just the Component of community is a really important part too. Who is our network? Who are our people? Who is supporting us? How do I engage? Who has my back? Right,
0: right. Everybody needs to know. Every young person needs to know who's who's got me. Who who has my back?
1: Right. And those those pieces are part of what we call the recovery model. But you certainly can't talk about the recovery model without talking about equity, and that is a part of this conversation too, right? Mm -hmm. How do we um, uh, respond as a mental health community and as a community more generally to the needs that are present right now and do it in a really equitable
0: way. Well, but we have to, because when you talk about equity, we just have to put it out there. Mm-hmm. That there are young, when we look at the disparities in our juvenile justice system, so if all young people, all, if we've kind of normalized that everybody experiences things that might cause trauma, that people have different mental health conditions but when we see black and brown young people and disproportionately black young people in our juvenile justice system it likely means that there are some young people that we are saying you need a mental health intervention and there are others that we say you need to be locked up right and those young people getting locked up are disproportionately black and brown
1: right and that is so that's that
0: equity lens that you're talking about
1: absolutely and that's a a A fundamental piece to how we fix the system, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We have to also understand that, you know, what might happen when one person is referred to diversion and another is not. How do we create more equitable systems to allow for that this intervention and this um, really important piece of service connection to happen to anyone who it it may be necessary for?
0: Yes. So one of the things about that is sort of access to mental health resources. Mm-hmm. And we know that, again, based on those systemic inequities that has have existed and systemic racism really that um, exist in systems, that we don't have equal access to mental health resources. Mm-hmm. And that um, unfortunately, sadly really, some of the same communities that have the highest rates of Um, violence and some of the other things that can cause trauma often have the fewest
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um, mental health resources so that that is sort of the framing as we think about it but there's another issue that relates to access and that issue is stigma Mm -hmm. especially as it relates to mental health Mm -hmm. when you talk about you know 70 or 95 percent of young people in these systems having mental health conditions I I'm gonna go out on a limb, and I would say that most people aren't thinking, oh, let's make sure we identify the mental health condition and and make sure we address it because there's also a stigma attached to it. What mm-hmm. does stigma even mean? Like, what is that as it relates to mental health in particular? Because we don't have as much, well, I'm gonna take that back. There are a lot of stigmas around physical conditions mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. But why with mental health is it such a big deal for people to talk about it?
1: It's such an important question, and it really is one of the driving factors in barriers to care for mental health. Mm -hmm. Stigma really means... A, th- a thought or a, um, a prejudice right that someone might have a, a thinking that um, if you live with a mental health condition then you are um it, it not uh, you're not as engaged in work
0: mm-hmm. and you can't function
1: right yeah and maybe and maybe that means i think you're lazy right yeah. and so that then turns into a stereotype that mm-hmm. anyone who lives with a mental health condition is lazy mm-hmm. and that turns into discrimination i'm not going to hire anyone who lives with a mental health condition because i don't think they can do the job mm-hmm. and that's where st- Stigma really um, it, it, it s- snowballs right. into what we look at, at from a society perspective, right? And we know, we you can see stigma um, in so many places every day just by the way that we talk about things, right? We talk about people with by putting their diagnosis first instead mm-hmm. of saying someone who lives with bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. right? Um, or we say things like crazy. Mm-hmm. And that really the the feeling that that evokes makes someone who may
0: be struggling
1: not want to stand up and say that they're struggling that's right
0: that's right and then you add on top of it even some of the different cultural barriers that might exist in different communities like oh you don't air your dirty laundry you don't Mm -hmm. talk about this or you don't want anybody to think less of you so or you are experiencing so many other barriers you don't want one more thing to be a barrier so you just keep it to yourself and do what so many often feel, which is suffer in silence. Mm -hmm. So what do we need to do to kind of, not just end the stigma, and I know that that's, that's something that even relates to how other people respond to you, but I think also just from a re-education of communities so that people don't feel afraid to speak up, that Mm -hmm. people feel like I can say this about myself and not feel like I'm going to be judged, and I know that This may take a lot of time and a lot of education. I know NAMI is working a great deal on trying to reduce stigma, but Mm -hmm. what kinds of things need to happen um, to make that a reality?
1: Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of different things here, but one is to know that you're not alone right? This experience is very is so common. And and it really, I think everyone can resonate with the idea that we have ebbs and flows in how we feel emotionally, right? And so what we need to know is that we're not alone. Mm-hmm. And you, what we also need to know is that there's help, right? And there is there is help and support, um, people in your community who want to connect with you, um, people at organizations like NAMI who want to connect with you, um, and People live in recovery every day. Mm -hmm. People experience mental health conditions and live beautiful, successful, wonderful lives every single day. So we have to know that there's some hope in this system. But the other thing I think we can do from a re-education perspective is we need to share our stories. We need to be doing things like this, talking really openly about trauma and mental health experiences, because that is what normalizes what happens to people and the the very brave people who talk and share their own stories make such a huge difference yeah. right in the people that they're connecting with
0: you know as we close i want to close with my own story because i think it will be helpful one for me others who are listening but i also think it is it illustrates the challenges and the barriers that are sometimes just within ourselves uh, several years ago, my fam, my daughters and I, we were leaving church. There was a shooting right outside of the church of someone who was a member of the church, whose, you know, ex-partner came around and shot them, uh, and then went on to commit suicide somewhere else. But we were all, church had just let out, we were all standing outside, And I was on the corner, my daughters were in, I don't think they were in the car, but we all scurried to the car after Mm -hmm. it happened. And I remember the, just, my daughters just completely so upset, Mm -hmm. one crying hysterically. And I remembered, and say to this day, not getting any mental health resources Mm -hmm. for them at the time. I think there was a combination of not really understanding if it had an impact, it was also a combination of not really knowing where to go, not knowing Mm -hmm. what to do, Mm -hmm. and probably my own trauma from it, because I also was living in that as well. Mm -hmm. So I guess as I close, I would love to know, like, when you say people recognizing and knowing that they're not alone Mm -hmm. and being able to tell their stories, what would you say is sort of like the most critical thing that we can be thinking about both from a policy making standpoint or even a messaging standpoint that can really help people know. I know that you may not even know which direction to go, but under situations like that, Mm -hmm. it is okay to get help and you should talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. Where do people go? Well, first I just wanna say thank
1: you for sharing that story because the, and I'm so sorry that it happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, the experience of that is, is clearly something that, you know, you, you comes back to you when you think Absolutely. in moments like this. And the, the bravery of being able to be vulnerable is such a hugely important thing to do. And I just, I really admire that. And I think we need more of it, right? Oh, we yeah. need so much more vulnerability mm-hmm. um, to say that this is a common human experience of uh, feeling things that, that feel heavy. Mm-hmm. And we, as policymakers and people who are, you know, in in front of our communities every day, we can be vulnerable like Absolutely. that, and we
0: can say that, and and life is happening to us too, right. Right. Yeah.
1: And what I think communities need to hear in that case is that, you know, there there is someone to go to or there is someone to turn to, whether it's a uh, faith based organization that we trust, whether it's a community organization that we trust, whether it's a friend or family member, whether it's NAMI Chicago. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what people call us about every single day.
0: How do people reach you?
1: They reach us at eight three three Nami Shy Nami C H I, and you know we we speak with folks and
0: Nami N A M I I want to say I'll do that eight three
1: three Nami N A M I Shy C H I, and you know there are people to hold you mm-hmm. they're there and Great. we need to we need to do that for each other.
0: Well, I'm going to share as well our call for calm line, which is texting the word talk. T-A-L-K, to five five 2020 or the word hablar, H-A-B-L-A-R, for Spanish language services. And that will connect you for free to a mental health professional within 24 hours. It's confidential, and again, it is free. But I think that just in light of our conversation, it's important for us to do everything we can to share resources that might be available. And in addition to the call for calm, thank you for sharing about NAMI Chicago and how people can get in touch with you. Jennifer, thank you so much for walking, listening, and learning with us today. Um, I really appreciate all that you've shared.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: Thank you for joining us. That's it for this episode of Walk, Listen, Learn. Our journey to justice. Until next time, I'm Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton. Thank you for walking, listening, and learning with me. Let's stay on this path towards justice, equity, and opportunity for all.